So good evening, everyone. Sharda just told me before the talk that down at the meditation community center, community part, that they're also doing a two-day residential meta retreat and that there were 70 people doing metta all day today and tomorrow there'll be 70 people. So all together that's 170 people doing metta. That's pretty good, huh? I think we're doing our part here. Doing our part to make things a little bit better in our heart and in our world. So tonight I want to talk about the four Brahma Viharas a bit. And these four Brahma Viharas translates as the four heavenly abodes. And they're four qualities of heart and mind. But really what I'm going to spend the most, I'll touch on each of them, but the most of this talk is really going to be about metta and compassion. And in some ways, for me, I see them as essentially the same. And different teachers um, may feel differently about that. But for me, they're the same. And I'll kind of share some of my thoughts about that. So the four Brahma Viharas, they represent the most beautiful and hopeful aspects of our human nature. They're mindfulness practices that we do and they protect our mind from falling into habitual patterns of reactivity, which actually undermine our best intentions. And so they're also referred to as mind-liberating practices But mostly what these qualities do is they awaken powerful healing energies which brighten the mind, uplift the mind to levels of clarity. And as a result, they become boundless states. So boundless states of metta, loving kindness, boundless compassion, boundless joy, and boundless equanimity. And also they manifest as purification and they transform the turbulent heart into a calm refuge. And I think that's what we all seek in some way is the refuge in our own heart and mind. I know at least I do. A place that I feel at home and comfortable. So this is the idea of the four Brahma Viharas, and they're talked about again and again in the traditions, all of the traditions of Buddhism. Compassion, love, being essential qualities for our spiritual journey. You know, I've really come to see without these qualities developed that we can't really progress in our path of awakening, in the path of insight. And I was thinking a lot, I just came back from a long retreat, and during this long retreat I thought a lot about the Buddha and his, who he was as a person and his great awakening and all that he went through in his life from birth to death. And especially I thought about his night of enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, where after many years of practicing and almost dying, So we know he was committed to this cause, you know. (laughs) Committed, you know, really, really committed to awakening. And so as he sat under the Bodhi tree, they say that the the forces of Mara started to attack. And then 
And it's described in various ways by Thich Nhat Hanh and described in other you know, places of reference and different descriptions and even in movies. But, he, but the account goes that he was attacked by the forces of Mara and Mara being this chief demon of greed, hatred and delusion basically tried to destroy him. Right? Destroy his concentration, destroy his body, destroy him as a person in that moment. And so they hurled rocks and stones and armies and launched firebombs and, and all kinds of things to distract him. And they say in that moment that he just held up his hand with complete love and acceptance and then the, all the weapons melted into flowers. So that struck me that in that moment of this epic, you could say in some way, a shamanic battle. And Mara's not outside, is here. It's the Mara's in our own mind, it's our own hatred, it's our own greed, it's our own confusion. You might have encountered Mara today, right? At <laughs> some point, in some moment, right? Or, the, or yesterday. You can see that this is, this is a manifestation of consciousness. This is the mind in its confusion. But he met that moment with love and kindness. He didn't take out a sword and try to fight, right? And that's our habitual response is that we often try to fight things. I know for me that would be if I felt attacked, you know, we we pick up something or we go to war with it in our own mind against ourselves. Again, this is an internal struggle. The Buddha solved his problem by looking at his own mind. In the end, he put away all distraction and said, here's where it's emanating. Here's the chaos. And he sat down and entered into sort of a chess game in some way. And he won. As many people have won, right? This is the beauty. But the bigger point that I want to emphasize in this story is that he did it with love and kindness. That that was the weapon. Right? And so in some way we can, I know when I, I teach meta in different places, some people, I remember doing a meta retreat uh, or teaching meta on a retreat in Yucca Valley, teaching you know, a period of meta. And then somebody came up to me in the interview and said, I hate meta. Ugh. You know, the way it sounds, the way you guys teach it. You know? <laughs> How could this possibly help me? You know? It was this kind of tough guy, you know, rugged, you know. And I said, I really get it, you know, that this might seem like love may seem weak on some level. And we might misunderstand compassion to actually think that compassion is, is weak. But these are the most powerful forces in the universe, in my mind, and what I've seen in myself. Because there's only love and compassion that can really conquer the Mars in our mind. When we fight, we lose. You'll see that, right? We fight, we lose. So as the Buddha won his epic battle and overcame the confusion and awoke to his true nature, he also surveyed the world with his new awareness. And he looked around and he saw uh, with some, I think, real compassion. And there's different stories about that. There's in tears and, and that different stories that 
he looked around and he saw human beings desperately seeking to be happy, but not actually knowing how to find happiness. And I could see this in my own life very clearly. Growing up the way that I grew up, I grew up in a very urban environment, right on the border of Long Beach and Compton. Often when people meet me, they think I was born in maybe a commune with a lot of friends. And <laughs> Oh, your name's Spring, and you're, you're so nice, and you know, you're very bright and happy. And, and I am that. I am that. And there was also this other reality, this other lived experience of seeing uh, a lot of confusion, a lot of violence, a lot of depression and substance abuse. The things that we see in our world, right? We see violence all around us, and wars raging, poverty, confusion. And so a lot of people can point us in a lot of directions. Say, that's where happiness is found. This is where happiness is found. But the Buddha was pointing to something really deep when he, he said, no, happiness is found through transforming the heart and the mind. It's sort of so different. What you're doing here is so different than what everybody else is doing. I hope you could feel that, that you're sitting here hour after hour cultivating love, right? This is not going in the, the stream of society. This is going against the stream. The Dalai Lama says, as human beings, we all want to be happy and free from misery. We have learned that the key to happiness is inner peace. The greatest obstacles to inner peace are disturbing emotions such as anger, attachment, fear, suspicion. While loving compassion and a sense of universal responsibility are the true sources of peace and happiness. So we can see how misguided a lot of the world is, right? The true happiness is found through love and compassion. But then why is all the madness happening, right? Because people think that that's the way to happiness, right? If I get what I want, maybe I accumulate, that's the path. Or violence is the path. Power is the path to happiness. But it's, it's not that way. So working with our difficult emotions is essential here. That when you come on retreat, it's almost like you've entered into a vision quest, I like to say, and you go into the underworld of the mind. Right? So all the stuff of the surface is sort of becomes the background and we go deeper and deeper into layers. And often what we find is what is really difficult. We see our sadness, our fear, our rage and anger, our self-hatred. Sometimes these voices in the mind, they can seem so loud with everything we're seeing is in 3D, you know. When I was on my retreat for five months, I initially was going to stay in a center for the whole five months, a little Tibetan center in Crestone, Colorado, right at the foot of the mountains, beautiful place. And then I decided after two months that I wanted to, I heard about a retreat cabin. And I had this idea, oh, this will be, this is how real yogis do it in the retreat. And I'll be on a mountain and it'll be great. I'll feel love in every moment. No one will bother me because, you know, the center was kind of noisy. And, you know, oh, this will be, this is it. This is, this is, you know, this will be wonderful. 
And so I got to the cabin, you know, and there's, you know, I luckily I had some solar panels, so I had a little electricity for a little refrigerator. And people, the caretakers brought me water uh, once a week, and somebody brought food up every two weeks. But it was at that moment that I kind of descended into what was one of the most difficult periods of my life. And it was this great period of purification, but, the, but I entered into what I would call a grief ritual that went on for two months. And it was as if everything that had ever, ever happened in my life that had caused harm or been sad to myself, my family members, the community, the world, Gaia, the planet we live on, everything just came out in this great purification of tears. And it went on and on and on. And I named it African grief because I teach African grief rituals with my dear friend, Saban Fusame. And we teach them here. And African grief rituals, we build this big altar down in the community hall. And it becomes, people emote a lot. You know, it becomes, it's a way to let go of the grief. And it became that. And that's not what I wanted when I moved into the cabin. <laughs> right? I was thinking, you know, Samadhi, overlooking the mountains, I'll be at one with nature there, it'll be great. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen when we come on retreat. We don't know what we're going to get. Right? We could deeply want to feel bliss or have some attachment to some idea. But that's what I got was grief. And it eventually passed and I was able to meet it. And some days I was really able to meet it with a lot of compassion. And some days I couldn't. But I tried. I thought, this is what's happening. And this is where I really tested my compassion and love. Right? This is, in moments like that, you test it. How strong is this compassion? Can it hold this? Another hour of this? Right? Another moment of terror? Another moment of complete despair? And the answer for me was yes. It was tried and true. And actually there was no other response, really, that was appropriate. Wendell Berry writes one of my favorite poems, to go into the dark. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. And so there has to be this place inside of us where we can't be afraid anymore of what's there. Unlock the doors, open the attic, <laughs> get out your dust busters or whatever, you know, and, and we, we, we allow, like, what is hidden? What's in the subconscious? What's, what's keeping us oppressed? And in that process that I went through, I went through so many body sensations. Somebody described one today of feeling something sitting, an elephant on their chest. I really resonated with that, right? My whole body was shifting and opening and pains were happening and moving. And this is part of the great healing process. This is part of the great liberation of letting go. And so I came out of that going through a lot. I came out of that period of self-judgment and fear stronger in some way. This is like we go down and we, we have our worst fear, because isn't that really our worst fear to go on a retreat and that happens? 
<laughs> right? So it's like when you live it, you live it. And so I was going to stay in this remote place. And then one morning I was meditating and um, I heard all this ruckus outside my front door. So I thought, That's, that can't be a good sign. You know, there's really no one up here. And it was a lot of noise. I look out of the door and the, there was a window in the door and there was this adorable yet gigantic black bear trying to get into the cabin. <laughs> and so I thought, well, <laughs> I'm going through so much. I don't know if I can hang out with this bear hanging around. <laughs> so that took me out of the way remote mountains and I, I moved into another house closer to the town away from all the bears and <laughs> finished my retreat there. So you don't know what you're going to get. And life is this great mystery of what happens. Love and kindness. In some way, it's our true nature. It comes out. Even if you tried to stop this force, it would come out anyway. I want to read you a true story. It's called Silent Night. Here's the story of Christmas Eve, 1914, on World War I battlefield in Flanders. As the German, British, and French troops stood facing each other, they were settling in for the night. A young German soldier began to sing Silent Night, Holy Night. Others joined in. This is a true story, by the way. When they had finished, the British French responded with other Christmas carols. Eventually, the men from both sides left their trenches and met in the middle. They shook hands, exchanged gifts, and shared pictures of their families. Informal soccer games began in what had been a no-man's land, and a joint service was held to bury the dead of both sides. The generals, of course, were not happy with these events. Men who have come to know each other's names and seen each other's families are much less likely going to want to kill one another. War seems to require a nameless, faceless enemy. So following that magical night, the men on both sides spent a few days simply firing aimlessly in the sky. Then the war was back in earnest and continued for three more bloody years. Yet the story of that Christmas Eve lingered, a night when the angels really did sing of peace on earth. There's also a movie being made about this. Somebody told me about it, the story. And so I think some way this love and compassion is our true nature, but it's not often understood. Like, what are these emotions? What is love? Often when I think of love in our culture, it's it's kind of associated with this romantic love. You know, we don't, we don't hear or see examples of this kind of bigger, unbounded, unconditional love. This is definitely rare beings. I think the Dalai Lama is somebody who, for me, reminds me of that, Thich Nhat Hanh, other beautiful beings that live their life with a certain amount of care for the benefit of other beings. And they remind us of the truth of who we are. In our capacity, you know, great beings remind me, ah, that's my capacity to kind of, yes, I can be in this moment. Learning to meet your difficulties with love is, is a practice. It's really an art. It's learning to just take your time 
Slow down when things are difficult. Slow down when you're reacting. And recognize, ah, there's some pain here. And how can I, how can I alleviate that? What can I do here? And sometimes it's just to hang out. And it's just to allow, not stop the process. But trust the process. It's leading us somewhere. Another, I want to tell you about um, my first story. And I hadn't thought about this for a long time. I I used to tell the story a lot on retreats, but it was coming to me when I was in the cabin just remembering. I started practicing Dharma when I was very young. Even in my teens, I was seeking and studying psychology and, and just trying to understand suffering because it was all around me. You know, just trying to understand where is happiness to be found, right? And often people would tell me in my family and in my life, well, you know, life's a bitch, then you die. I can remember someone telling me that, and I think, no, come on. How hopeless is that? You know, you come here and this is it, you know? There's got to be some possibility of freedom here. And this should be the inspiration is the Buddha's life and all of the Buddhas who have come and gone that there's a map that they leave behind, this road map that says this is liberation is possible, freedom is possible, so the end of suffering is possible. When I heard this, this brought me tremendous joy. And it all depends on our own effort, right? We control that. We can wake up. That was very, I, that produced a lot of joy in me because it wasn't the hopeless story, right? Well, sorry, you just got to do you know, be here and deal with it. On some level, we do. But on another level, we have a whole set of practices. Practices that are well-established, ancient paths, right? Siddhartha Gautama was not the first Buddha. He was one of many, millions have come and gone on different religions, different traditions. So when I was 13, I had my first, what I think was a real insight into compassion, a real awakening into compassion. And in some way it changed my life, I think. It set me on a certain course. So I got in trouble when I was 13 for shoplifting. And um, I, I was my mother, she was a single parent. And so she was really mad at me for this. You know, I got caught. It was pretty obvious. It was in the middle of a department store. And he had no money. And it was actually a Valentine's gift for somebody that I had a, a crush on, you know, or, you know, that kind of thing. And so I got caught. And they gave me all these community hours. And my mother was so furious. She said she tried to find what would be the worst community service. And so she said, I'm going to take you to Glide Church. And you're going to scrub the kitchen, so for, for you all who don't know Glide Church, it's a church in the area of San Francisco called the Tenderloin. And so this was 25 years ago. Okay, it's a rough neighborhood now, but 25 years ago, it was kind of abandoned completely. And there was prostitutes and 8 o'clock in the morning, just full-blown, you know, it was like the middle of the night, you know, just out. Nobody was really trying to hide it. And there was poverty and drugs and and just people sleeping. It was really, actually, really sad. And so this great Cecil Williams decided to open a church and just provide outreach right in the middle. So Glide Church came about. And they had a, they would feed people. Their soup kitchen was every day. 
And so my mother dropped me off there and was like, you're going to clean the kitchen and feed the people. And, you know, and so I, I thought, okay, you know, that was my punishment. So I, I agreed, you know. And so there I was getting out and going in the kitchen and, and helping. And the first thing that I noticed was the people who worked in the kitchen were people who had been literally to hell and back. And when you meet people who have been to the depths of hell and suffering and have made it back and they have a lot of metta now, it's their energy, it's nothing like it. You know, these people would say, I was saved by Jesus on the street, you know, and they would tell me stories and Jesus rattled me and grabbed me, came into, and now I'm clean. And, and you know, many of them had scars and missing teeth, but they, to me, they were so beautiful. I just fell in love with them all right away. You know, some had been prostitutes and some had been prison, but they were there to serve wholeheartedly with all their heart to make glide better and were volunteers, regular volunteers. So anyway, we went about making the lunch. And so the equipment in the kitchen was very old. It kind of looked like somebody, you know, a very old kitchen. And so they pointed to the refrigerator and there was stacks of hot dogs. And then the bread was day-old bread from the, the bakeries that they had went and got, you know, so it was very old. And then they had these giant, I swear the cans were about the big as this bell of pork and beans. <laughs> and they looked like they'd been around a long time, right? Like, where did, and so we opened all the beans and we got everything ready. And, and, you know, I didn't think anybody would really come because there was nobody there. But I looked outside at 12 o'clock and that line was so long. I couldn't believe it. It was really long and there was all these people in the line. And, and I was really surprised by that because there was a lot of children in the line with families. And so the children looked really disheveled. You know, they just had a hard time. You know, these were people that were having a really hard time. And there was one of those cold days in San Francisco. So everybody was sort of braced up against the side of the wall like just kind of waiting in the line. And so my job was to serve the beans. So they got two hot dogs, two pieces of bread, and, and a big scoop of beans. And so in my effort to try to alleviate suffering, I was smiling and telling, hi, you know, put the beans, but nobody wanted to talk and smile. It wasn't, they just wanted to get through the line. And so people had their heads down really low. And the children weren't really very happy and and so people got their food and some sat some went out some but halfway through the service the line kept growing and the cook came out from the back and he said one hot dog one piece of bread half a scoop of beans now and so we the line kept going and then he came out and he said spring cut all the hot dogs in half now and the bread in half now and we're out of beans and we ran out of food, and there was many people in the line still. And for some reason, I think just seeing the children and seeing the families looking sad. When after the service was over, the, the meal service, I went out on the curb, and I just started burst into tears. You know, it was just because I felt that I loved these people, and I didn't know them, and that was the insight. It was that I could love people I didn't even know. I felt this deep love. And out of that love, I wanted to help in some way. And I was concerned where they were going. Well, where could they eat now? Where do these people live? You know, because they just seemed like they just came out of nowhere. A hundred people, 200 people. And so I was really concerned about that. And I, I remember that was a huge insight for me. 
that I could love people that I didn't know and I could want to alleviate their suffering. And, you know, I went on with my life. I, I served there many more times and had the same experiences, but it was a lasting impression of compassion for me, that it was, awoke something in me at a young age, that it didn't matter if I know, know you or not, that I can still love you very deeply and care about your well-being. The Dalai Lama, every time he goes somewhere, he always says, no one's ever a stranger. It's like meeting an old friend. And when I was on his website recently, there was photos, and he's always touching someone's face. You know, every photo is like, like meeting his child or something again. You know, it's so much affection. that you, It's like this love of human beings and them wanting them to be happy. So... Love and kindness is something that we can develop. It's something that awakens in us. It's something that is innate in us. I'm convinced of that. And for some, some people, it's taught out of them. Hatred, in my mind, is really taught. It's cultivated moment by moment. In the Bambemba tribe of South Africa, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he or she is placed in the center of the village, alone and unfettered. All work ceases and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time, each recalling the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his or her lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. The tribal ceremony often lasts for several days. At the end, the circle is broken. A joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. So if we did that to people at San Quentin right now, we would restore their humanity, right? <laughs> if somebody, we were willing to sit in a circle and re- re- remind them who they are again and again, that's a form of metta. This is like, oh, don't you remember your beauty? You're forgetting, brother. You're forgetting, sister, who you are in our tribe, our family here. We forget. And when we forget who we are, we harm ourselves and other beings. This is clear. It's forgetting. Mindfulness is easy. Remembering to be mindfulness, remembering to be mindful is hard. Right? So suffering happens when we do forget and we act out of mind states that are rooted in hatred and delusion and fear. We harm ourselves when we believe the stories in the mind that are destructive. We harm other beings. We harm the planet. I'm not sure who this is from. I think it's maybe from the Upanishads, but it's, watch your thoughts for they become words. Watch your words for they become actions. Watch your actions for they become habits. Watch your habits for they become character. Watch your character for it becomes your destiny. And I like that because we can see the spiral. And what's beautiful is what you're doing here, that in some way we're cultivating all these beautiful qualities 
And for some people, they might not get it. Like, why is this really helping me? You know, they might have doubt about it. Where is this really going? But it works moment by moment to transform our heart and our mind. Another story that I love, I was thinking about compassion. Jack Cornfield has been my teacher for about 10 years now, and he, his teacher was a, a monk, a beautiful monk named Mahagosananda, and he is called the great Gandhi of Cambodia. And he was telling this story to us. We were, and this wasn't that long ago, maybe eight or nine months ago, he was telling a story, and I was inquiring about it, like, ah, oh, this was really your teacher, and I, I'd been looking up some things about Mahagosananda and was deeply touched by his life. If you go to the Gratitude Yet you'll, Hut, you'll see a picture of the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda meeting here at Spirit Rock some years back. They had a teacher meeting. Rarely does the Dalai Lama bow deeply like this, but in the photo that was caught at just the right moment, each one, they're completely bent over all the way like this, each trying to bow lower to the other one. Right? <laughs> and they're like all the way down. Love bowing to love, right? Compassion bowing to compassion. And so Maha Gosananda was just amazing monk, and he was a monk his whole life, but he would lead the Cambodian peace marches and taking the people who had been in refugee camps for, for years and who had been through tremendous trauma and pain. And what he would do is he would walk them back to their villages to inhabit their homes again. So going by truck was too traumatizing. So how do you come back to your land or where you've been you know, gone for years, your family maybe have murdered there and tortured and all the pain that happened in Cambodia. So he would, they would walk for miles and they would chant the Metta Sutta. And they would chant... Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law of the Buddha, all the Buddhas. Isn't that amazing? He spent 14 years doing that. It's just incredible taking people by the hand, helping them re-inhabit their homeland, their ancestral land, their you know, and, and maybe the families, there would be two people left in the family, maybe a grandfather and a, a, an aunt or something, but he would welcome them all back and all back, and he, would, he was beautiful in that way. Another funny thing about Mahagosananda, he was quite intelligent. He had went and he had got a PhD when he was very young from uh, in India, and he always said PhD meant to him person who has dukkha. <laughs> 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 so even though he spent all this time cultivating, you know, he could still, he was so humble. And Jack said, when I heard about this great teacher, you know, and, and I went and, and I, I wanted to meet him, and there was this little monk smiling in the corner, and, and, and he overlooked it for a while, and they were like, well, that's Maha Gosananda. And he was like, him? Oh. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's not some big personality. This is just one monk who has developed boundless compassion. Right? Boundless compassion. And his, his people are suffering and he's willing to try to help that. So this is the potential of the human heart. This is not for some and not others. You know, you may say, oh, not me. Today I had, you know, I was crazy all day. I could never do that. You don't know. 
what you're capable of. And in some way, I, I, I want to inspire people that I talk to now because our world needs people to stand up. We need people to be willing. And so I'm so happy you're here purifying whatever needs to be purified, right? So that you can find your own joy and happiness and bless others in that, out of that space, you know? So we're not lost in our own self-delusion anymore of me, 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 right? The story of I. Have you gotten tired of the telenovela yet, right? So boring, you know, it is on retreat, it's like the same story. You know, but it did wear out because after it would arise, it played out so many millions of times. <laughs> it just wasn't interesting anymore. And what is now interesting is how can I serve myself? How can I liberate my mind for the benefit of all? And how can I serve this world that I live in? How can I help? You know, may these hands be of service. The Dalai Lama often says, even if you don't want to do anything good for the world, try not to cause problems. <laughs> right? Just refrain from that. If people just did that, that would be plenty, you know. But again, we forgive because beings are doing what they think is leading to happiness. It's a... It's, a, it's, an, it's an incredible deluded state of mind, actually. It's the epitome of the ego, so concretized that one could actually start harming in the name of, you know, love or what religion or anything. Roberto Di Vincenzo, the famous Argentine golfer, once won a tournament, and after receiving a check and smiling for the cameras, he went to the clubhouse and prepared to leave. Sometime later, he walked alone to his car in the parking lot and was approached by a young woman. She congratulated him on his great victory and then told him that her child was seriously ill and near death. Devenzo was touched deeply by her story and took out a pen and endorsed his winning check for payment to the woman. Make some good days for the baby, he said as he pressed the check into her hands. The next week he was having lunch in a country club when a PGA official came to his table. Some of the guys in the parking lot there told me you met a woman last week. Yes, after I won the tournament, DiVincenzo nodded. Well, said the official, I have news for you. She's a phony. She's not married. She has no sick baby. She fleeced you, my friend. DiVincenzo looked up. You mean there's no baby who's dying? That's right, he said, that's the best news I've heard all day. <laughs> Guess it's all what you focus on in life, huh? <laughs> and so, you know, I want to be realistic about this because this process that you're undergoing to open your heart, awaken to your true nature and heal and, and what we're doing here, it does take time, you know? It's a process. When I first, I've been practicing Dharma pretty intensively for about 15 years now. And I've had my foot on the gas, pretty steady, going many retreats, different healing modalities, everything, you know, that I can. And I remember when I first got into my first retreat, I thought, okay, maybe two retreats I'm there, right? 
And there's this effort in the beginning, like this wholehearted. And I was talking to some of my friends about we make this huge effort and we hit a wall of purification, really, right? And we kind of crash to the ground and humility and tears, right? Oh, this isn't an overnight thing here. <laughs> this is, we're in it for the long haul. And so what happened was I got a second win now, right? So some kind of lack of maturity was in the beginning that this is some quick thing that I can, you know, one, two, three, pop. You know, some people are lucky and they, they have, you know, a spontaneous awakening. For the others, it's step by step, right? Moment by moment, you know? And we can't worry about the outcome. We just have to be in the moment and just move forward with our intention. Moving forward, moving forward, steady, steady making our way. But now there's a maturity to me now that sees like, okay, this could be lifetimes, but I'm okay with that. You know, this is the process. This is, this is the learning. This is the school. So patience is needed. Extreme patience. Patience is one of the paramis. First parami, right? Infinite patience. So you might be at day four going, I don't know if my heart has bursted open yet. Well... This doesn't work, right? <laughs> you know, it's a process. A martial arts student once went to his teacher and said earnestly, I am devoted to studying your martial system. How long will it take me to master it? The teacher's reply was casual, 10 years. Impatiently, the student answered, but I want to master it faster than that. I'll work very hard. I'll practice every day, 10 or more hours a day. If I have to, how long will it take then? The teacher thought for a moment, smiled, and said, 20 years. <laughs> right? So you can't rush it, right? When we get that mind of trying to get something, like, get me to feel more loving, you know, rip, you know we start trying to rip things up or go too fast, we just crash. You crash and you crash hard in a state of frustration, aversion, and, and sadness. Right? So we just honor where we are with the whole thing. We honor this journey. We honor that there's a rhythm to opening. There's a rhythm to it. When we're ready, you know, when we're ready, we, 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 we get there. We move forward. That there's no need to want and strive and crave and claw. You know, it's all in the settling back. Isn't that the funny thing about samadhi? We talked about concentration. It doesn't come from efforting five hours on one single object like we think it does, right? It all comes from this sort of relaxation, right? So settling back and just being. You know, do your metta practice with a sense of like you're sitting in a lazy boy chair, right? And you're just wishing well, right? May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May all beings be peaceful, That's an important piece. And it, I, I think it comes to different people that settled in feeling over time. But there's nowhere to go. It takes time and it's worth the time. Another little funny story that I like, it's kind of childlike, but you'll get the message. It's called a cry for help. Once upon a time, there was an island. There was an island where all the feelings lived. Happiness, 
sadness, and all the others, including love. One day it was announced to the feelings that the island would sink, so all repaired their boats and left except for love. Love stayed. Love wanted to persevere until the last possible moment, so that when the island was almost sinking, love decided to ask for help. Richness was passing by love in a grand boat. Love said, Richness, can you take me with you? Richness answered, No, I can't. There's a lot of gold and silver in my boat. There's no place for you here. Love decided to ask Vanity, who was also passing by in a beautiful vessel. Vanity, please, help me. I can't help you, love. You're all wet and you might damage my boat, Vanity answered. Sadness was close by, so love asked for help. Sadness, let me go with you. Oh, love, I'm so sad. I need to be by myself. Sorry. (laughs) Happiness passed by love, too, but she was so happy and blissed out, she didn't hear love calling again and again and again. (laughs) Suddenly there was a voice. Come, love, I will take you. It was an elder. Love felt so blessed and overjoyed that he forgot to ask the elder her name. When they arrived at dry land, the elder went her own way. Love, suddenly realizing how much was owed to the elder for the rescue, asked Knowledge, another elder, Knowledge, who helped me? Oh, it was time, Knowledge answered. Time asked Love, but why did time help me? Knowledge smiled with deep wisdom and answered, because only time is capable of understanding how great love really is. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> Very childlike, but you get the point. Uh, because it's true. This quality isn't cheesy. It isn't, it isn't corny. We're talking about an energy that is, is, is liberating in the end. It's strong. This conquers Mars. This unites people. This is the energy that moves whole groups, starts movements, love and compassion. This is what resonates with our deepest nature when we are awake and we're present. In some way, this is why we're here, is to wake up to this. Just think about what else is there to do? Collect things? Shop? You know? I don't think so. You wouldn't be here if that was your interest. You could be on a vacation shopping this whole week instead of sitting here moment after moment. Thank you for what you're doing. You know, so already there's something waking up in you, or it's already awake. Otherwise, you wouldn't be interested in this. This would have no appeal to you. So it's, it's inspiring for me. So being patient, understanding that the process takes time, the forgiveness comes from understanding compassion. It comes from understanding, you know, I've come to forgive my father for being a drug addict and being crazy. I've forgiven my mother for abandoning her children. I've forgiven my grandfather for being a horrendous grandfather. You know, it's like, generation I look back in the family tree like wow this was rough right I see where all the grief comes from you know and I forgive them all because truly they didn't know right each generation hands down its suffering to the next we see this generationally 
right? One person is a victim of child abuse, they pass that down to the next one. The next one hands it over to the... It's like handing over this big lump of coal, like what Sharda talked about last night. <laughs> you know, we hand down instead of, you know, so we're creating a new way of being, right? Handing down other teachings, like another, another perspective. And so with that is also, I didn't really get to joy and equanimity, but the joy is also an aspect of all of this. You know, so we have the metta, and then we have the compassion, and then we have this joy in us, this quality that can celebrate the goodness. We celebrate other people's good acts, right? I celebrate with you all that you're here. I, it makes me happy, right? I have a friend who I've had since I was 12 years old. Uh, she lives in Europe now. But anytime something good happens to me, I call her. Because literally I can, I used to have to hold the phone like this because she screams so loud. She's so excited, right, by what's going on good for me. That's joy. Can I celebrate your awakening, your beauty, your success? Why not? That's more for us, you know, instead of being contracted. And so we'll talk more about that. But that's joy. It's like celebrating in the goodness, celebrating in what's happening, celebrating in Spirit rocks flourishing, celebrating 170 people doing metta on the land today, right? Because all we focus on is war and poverty and what's not going well. Hey, 170 people were here, meditate. This is wonderful. And what's going well in your own life? And then equanimity is this ability to hold it all, the beauty and the heartbreak. Right? So we do celebrate there was 170 people meditating and we also hold it, you know, there's war happening. And somehow we come to balance with both of these. That life is 10,000 joys and sorrow. Right? One moment we're laughing, the next we're crying. Right? Something touches us and we, we, we tears and then the next moment it's joy again. How many emotions have you had today actually? Right? Probably about 50-50, right? Good and bad, right? <laughs> That's it. That's, can we be with the ride of the roller coaster of life in that way? So we cultivate this equanimity. This is the other Brahma-vihara. These are the other qualities of the heart and mind. So I'll end with this story about equanimity. It's called Two More Isles. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle and the little girl began to shout loudly for candy and when told she couldn't have any, began to cry very loudly. The mother said, There, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there would be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica will be through this checkout stand in five minutes. Then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. 
I couldn't help on noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, I'm Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy. (laughs) (laughs) So I leave you on that note because it's just that way sometimes, right? I've got 10 minutes left in the sitting. Then I can go have a nice cup of tea, right? That's the way we get by sometimes. There's some wisdom in that, right? We just, we, sometimes there's times we just hold on, right? And we just breathe and we take another step on the earth, right? And it is what it is, tantrums, misery, rage. The good thing is it's all passing, nothing lasts, you know, as you've seen by today, right? Nothing lasts. It's all changing. So equanimity brings us that comfort. And all of the Brahma Viharas are, are, are powerful and they're boundless and they're, they, they help us on this journey to liberation. And they're so worth cultivating. And they will protect you, they'll protect your heart and they'll protect others. And so I, my deepest wish is that all of us develop these qualities, boundless compassion, boundless love, boundless joy, and boundless equanimity. And thank you for your kind attention. So we just sit for just a moment. So thank you. Enjoy the walking meditation. And then tonight, um, Sharda and I will be chanting uh, Tara, the compassion mantra. Uh, So you're interested. Come back and chant with us a bit. Thank you.